Welcome to The Resonance, the podcast about energy and sustainability from Alpha Energy Group. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Alpha Energy Group podcast. I'm Jeremy Nicholson, Corporate Affairs Officer at Alpha, and I'm joined for my fortnightly catch-up on the commodity markets by my colleague Jason Durden, our Head of uh, Energy Markets and Risk Management. Uh, Jason, starting, I guess, with gas, as we tend to do these days, how are things developed since we last spoke a fortnight ago? Are prices roughly similar in the UK market? Have we seen them come off a shade? Yes, Jeremy. I mean, the markets uh, remain highly volatile and very sensitive to headlines, given uh, the crises that are enveloping us all at the moment. But essentially, we are uh, maintaining below key technical signals on uh, a lot of gas prices out there. Um, UK market is below the 200 day on the uh, front month. And winter 22, which is keenly watched, is trading at its uh, lowest level since war broke out. So clearly, there is lots of vol in the market, but also there is a a general softness or a general unwinding of worst case, uh, I suppose, because there seems to have been some mitigation in uh, what some of the action points and, and sticking points in actually getting a commonality to how these things are dealt with that uh, is pervading the market. Right. But of course, things things remain relatively tight compared with, in quotes, normal conditions, whatever they are, if we can still remember them, in the gas and also power markets in continental Europe. And we're seeing the interconnectors, aren't we, continuing to flow both gas and, and power out of the UK, uh, which is kind of unusual for this time of year. It's not unprecedented, is it? But, uh, but there's a differential there still, I think. Yes, totally. I mean, uh, we had on Thursday, we had EDF downgrading its expectation for nuclear generation in uh, 22, down to a headline figure down to 280 uh, terawatt hours from, from 295, that reflecting what's going on. And you've only got to look at the stats this so far this summer that uh, the UK has been exporting a significant amount of uh, power into uh, France um, instead of uh, something more normal, which would see us... Uh, Uh, in the UK net recipients. Well, I guess it, it's useful at the moment uh, when the you know when the weather is in our favour, when there's enough wind and there has been reasonable amount of wind generation going on, and solar, of course, picking up. I think we've seen pretty healthy um, uh, volumes coming out of the UK solar fleet in recent weeks. Yeah, so we started uh, this month with high wind, but solar has built. And although wind has dipped a little bit for the balance of this month as we've sort of moved into a more settled summer high pressure um, scenario, we're still recording around about seasonal normal expectation for wind, but it has been you know double plus. But what we are seeing is we're seeing sort of four or five gigs of um, solar um, being recorded onto the uh, onto the system as well, which um, you know is a very significant thing at this time of the year. Certainly during uh, peak load hours, anyway. Indeed, and although not all of that capacity is necessarily much use when we need it most in the depth of winter, particularly overnight, enjoy it whilst it's la- whilst it lasts. That's the whole point of the uh, of the solar capacity. You know, one day we may be storing surplus solar energy in the form of hydrogen or something, but in the meantime, it means we burn less gas. And you know, turning to the, the international situation, uh, both for gas and oil, of course. I mean, we're entering that season where uh, you know demand for road fuels in North America 
goes up. Uh, but equally, there is this possibility of, uh, you know, the, the lockdowns we've seen in Shanghai starting to end and so on. So presumably this is, these are both positive drivers for demand internationally. They are, Jeremy. We've probably got some more regional uh, and domestic question marks. As I said, we've we've talked about uh, the price being post-conflict lows, but um, I think you know there are some signals in Europe that are relatively positive, which demonstrate why the price is where it is, and those essentially are an oversupply into the UK that we know we've been dealing with. Also, weather forecasts that look pretty set for, for June. And also with uh, ENI signalling that it would uh, open um, accounts with with Gazprom Bank, kind of completing the picture that actually you know there is a willingness uh, on the part of uh, European actors to continue to take energy where it is absolutely needed, and there isn't you know any other viable choice. So whilst things are a little stilled on that part, if you open up uh, into this truly global market now and you look at resurging demand from perhaps as early as the 1st of June in China for oil and uh, and LNG and also obviously the start of the driving season uh, in the US next week with the uh, Memorial Day weekend holiday. We are seeing, what, I think a 40-year low on uh, diesel stocks in the US. Um, we're seeing the Brazilian government intervening in their national oil company. And we are seeing warnings that uh, during their peak demand period of Q3, they may actually physically not be able to uh, uh, to attract enough diesel for their economy, um, particularly at market prices, given the elevated uh, level they are at the moment. So lots and lots up in the air and lots and lots to play for at the moment. So it seems, and, and you know, we need to remind ourselves it's not all about crude oil, it's about refinery capacity and storage and so on, and the constraints on diesel, not just in America and parts of Europe and the UK too, are very real and could get quite acute um, as the year goes on. Uh, but looking at the sort of wider economic picture, you know, we're at that time of year where the great and the good fly in in their private jets to uh, Davos to tell us how to, to live our lives and uh, uh, help plan the, the global economy. Economy. Doubtless some useful things come out of it too. But, you know, what, what is the picture that's emerging there with the prospects for economic growth, the risks of recession perhaps, and, you know, the spectre of inflation everywhere? Well, very difficult, I think, for certainly from a European perspective to, to paint a really positive picture. I think we've had the, the great and the good wringing their hands, of course, as the uh, opening gambits are exchanged. German Vice-Chancellor stating that we don't have one, we have four simultaneous crises. And the, the word global recession and uh, stability are at tipping points. I think, you know, that's possibly a statement of the obvious, possibly... Um, but there does seem to be quite a... Um, Europe could talk itself into a recession, I think. I mean, one could argue that it's in the post and uh, with uh, 9% uh, inflation in the UK and uh, the rest of the world not too far behind... Uh, um, I suppose it's inevitable as a, a lagging indicator. Against the other backdrop, you know, the IMF recently uh, last month cut their growth forecast again. OPEC month-on-month uh, month seem to be trimming back their oil forecast for next year uh, and the balance of this year. Lots and lots of headwinds. But I think, you know, the key to this is the relationship between the West and Russia. I think um, some stability there would be very helpful. 
but we, we see that Hungary are still, I think Hungary are pulling no punches with their blocking of the um, the, the EU deal on uh, on oil by saying, actually, you know, this is, this is too critical for our economy and um, others like Slovakia to say that actually there has to be a solution to what this means for all of us or, or it doesn't work. So, yeah, I mean, I think the stakes are high and you are seeing through the opening statements at Davos that people are probably very, very worried. And with good reason. One shouldn't trivialise these things. I mean, it, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes making decisions at the moment. It must be a very difficult thing. And with the price pressure still on and the issues over the availability of Russian coal, oil and gas and, you know, a series of fudges, if we can call it that, being being done to enable those to carry on flowing for a period in Europe, which I think was probably inevitable. Um, it's, it's a difficult combination of circumstances. Um, you know, what does that sort of, where does that leave the green agenda with, um, you know, good cause, it must be said, for accelerating a transition away from fossil fuels. But in the short term, um, we have to keep lights on and gas flowing. And but equally, what's the impact of all this on the carbon markets? Because you would have thought, you know, burning more coal would be putting pressure on carbon. But equally, there are other impacts, I believe, on the market. So, yes, we've seen the transition away from uh, away from gas to coal where it's possible, pushing up the amount of uh, uh, carbon credit use and supporting the carbon market there, which is when we saw it moving back towards highs. Um, what we've seen now is we've seen the... Uh, the EU and uh, some of the actors coming out and saying, "Well, actually, we'll we'll create a policy where we're, we're we'll print more certificates." And of course, that sent the market back sort of into the middle of its trading range and away from highs. So, if the EU is signalling that actually it will pay for some of the policy decisions it's doing by funding more credits or taking the pressure off of or price pressure off, I think that really is. Uh, a key signal that will worry the market. So fundamentally, we are given some supportive talking carbon. At the same time, we're seeing politicians that perhaps don't want to add more burden in terms of price to already beleaguered uh, sector and industry and, 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 and domestic pricing as well. But at the same time, also, it, it could lay a golden egg, couldn't it, really, by uh, by generating some, some extra income by diluting. So perhaps, I think, possibly could be interpreted as uh, as a softening of short-term green agenda. Uh, although I think, as we've discussed in these podcasts before, I think actually this probably drives the green agenda quicker in the medium and long term. But I think this winter and this autumn will all be about uh, keeping things affordable and keeping the lights on. Well, I'm sure that's right, Jason. Yes, of course, when it comes to carbon pricing, uh, European governments and certainly in the UK too need to take care that the you know the, the green costs aren't getting out of control. But let's face it, even, even if there weren't any carbon prices out there for generators and others to absorb or pass on, you know the the commercial signal is to move away from from fossil fuels if there's a secure alternative. So I'm sure that that you know it's only a matter of time before things uh, a new equilibrium establishes itself there. Maybe it's a no bad thing to make sure carbon prices don't get too out of hand. Well, thanks for explaining about that. I look forward particularly to catching up on the macroeconomic issues and seeing how things develop in a fortnight's time. So do listen out for uh, our next podcast on this topic. Have a look at our website alphaenergygroup.com 
forward slash UK and have a look at our reports there. And we hope that you're able to join us for a podcast again very soon.